In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We had another big up week in the stock market, defying all of the fundamentals that would argue for significantly lower stock prices. Now, even though the markets rallied, it was a very narrow rally. Again, there's a handful of stocks that are leading the way. The generals are are going, but the troops are are not coming along uh, with them. So. All of this, I don't think, is going to end well for the longs in the stock market. You know, the Microsoft hit a new all-time record high today. And even though the Dow was up almost 400 points on the day, the big mover again were the tech stocks led by Microsoft. But the, the NASDAQ 100 was up two and a quarter percent on the day, about three percent on the week. But if you look at the Russell 2000, for example, which is obviously a much broader measure of stocks, that index is no higher than it was back in the summer of 2018. It's made no gains whatsoever. Yet during that same time period, the Nasdaq 100 is basically doubled in price. So the valuations are extremely stretched. And what I think is driving this rally and the rally last week is the perception now that I think is pretty much universally accepted among investors that the Fed is done, that there are no more rate hikes coming. There's no more rate hikes coming this year. And 
there's probably no rate hikes coming next year. In fact, if you look at what the markets now expect, they are pricing in 75 basis points of cuts for next year. And it's my guess that they'll start to price in more cuts than that because 75 basis points is really not a lot of cutting. And if the Fed starts cutting rates, it's because the economy is very weak, uh, weaker than it already is. And potentially we have a banking crisis, financial crisis or something breaks, which will require the Fed to be far more aggressive than 75 basis points. But this is why I think the market is rallying. And you know, Powell took part in a panel discussion that I was watching that was interrupted briefly by some uh, climate protesters. Um, But they managed to uh, get rid of all the protesters after a a, a short time out, rather comical. Uh, But in any event, uh, they went back and I I listened to what everybody on this panel had to say, but I I paid particular attention uh, to Powell and, and, and his comments. And, you know, one of the things that he did say was that nobody at the Fed is either thinking about or talking about rate cuts, which clearly the market doesn't believe. But I think that is a a lie, you know, on its face. I mean, how could that possibly be true? How could the FOMC members not even be talking about rate cuts? I mean, even if they don't want to do it, how can they not be talking about it? After all, what do they do over there? They, they move interest rates. They move them up. They move them down, right? They're either hiking them or they're cutting them. How can they not talk about the prospect of cutting rates, even if they're going to reject it? Clearly, they're talking about it. Even if they don't want to do it, they have to talk about doing it to decide that they don't want to. So why would Powell go out of his way to lie and say that they don't even talk about rate cuts? Because he really wants to make sure that the markets take seriously the tough talk about inflation because he keeps reiterating how far inflation is from their 2% target, how much higher it is, and how much further they have to go to bring it back down. Uh, and so part of that is to uh, you know, not even let the markets think that they're discussing rate cuts when, of course, they're discussing rate cuts. This is all just the BS, right? You got to talk tough because at the end of the day, they don't have any stick at all, let alone a small stick, based on how indebted the the economy is, how everybody from the government to the corporations to the household sector. Um, Now, Powell also talked about the consumer again, right? The, The resilient. This is his favorite word, just like, you know, Uh, transitory was when he talked about inflation, uh, it's resilient, right? Every time he talks, that's his word, right? Resilient consumer. Well, I mean, is the consumer really that resilient? I mean, sure, he's still spending money, but you've got to look at why. I mean, it's not like, you know, the consumer is resilient like Superman is resilient to bullets, right? You shoot Superman and the bullets just bounce off his chest like no big deal. The consumer is not resilient like that. The consumer is getting shot 
and those bullets are hurting. They're doing damage, right? The consumer is bleeding and hurting, but he's still breathing. He's still alive. He's badly wounded, but he's resilient enough not to be dead. And how is the consumer staying alive, you know, with all these bullets, right? Well, one way he's doing that is by depleting his savings. Right? A lot of consumers, you know, got a big boost. They got these COVID stimulus checks. And so they had those. And so they, they spent that. That's gone. The other thing the consumer is doing is, you know, maxing out the credit cards. Um, you know, credit card debt is at an all-time record high, even though credit card interest rates are at an all-time record high. It's almost 21% now is the average rate on credit card debt. Who would borrow at 21% if they didn't have to? I mean, if you had a choice, you wouldn't do it. But so many Americans, these resilient consumers, are putting their grocery bill on a credit card and paying 21% interest on top of the higher price for food. So I wouldn't say that's resilient. I mean, they're surviving barely, uh, but it's not really resiliency that is enabling it. Now, what's the other thing that's enabling the consumer uh, to, to, to survive all these bullets is taking on additional jobs. I've been discussing that on the podcast. You know, we got, again, on the jobs numbers that we got last week, and I think that's also what's driving the narrative that the Fed has done hiking, is based on how weak the non-farm payroll report was last week. It was extremely weak. But one thing that was strong was second and third jobs. It was a surge, almost 400,000. We have more Americans than ever before working two or three jobs. That's how the consumer is remaining resilient. He's working more, right? And that's what he needs to do to keep on spending. So deplete your savings, max out your credit cards, and get a sucking job. Now, if you want to describe that as well, we got this resilient consumer. The consumer is going to bleed out because eventually there's no way to survive. He's mortally wounded. He's just delaying uh, death. Uh, by all of these means that he has at his disposal. But eventually, you know, these lifelines are gone, right? Your, your savings are zero, so you can't deplete that anymore. At some point, you max out your credit cards. At some point, you can't borrow any more money because the credit card companies cut you off. So there is a limit to where you can go on the credit card. Now, I think consumers are going to test that limit I think they will keep on borrowing until they can't borrow anymore. Because I think a lot of people who are borrowing know they're never going to pay the money back. That's why they're willing to borrow the money, because they know they're not going to pay it back. So they don't care how much they borrow. All they do is make the minimum payment until they get cut off. But at some point, they're going to get cut off. Now, as far as uh, the moonlighting goes, there is a limit. I mean, you can't work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, you've got to sleep. Otherwise, you, you know, you're going to die. So there is some limit to how many jobs one person can hold down. Because where there is no limit is inflation. Prices are going to keep on rising because the budget deficits are skyrocketing. The money printing is going to continue. The inflation burden is going to be heavier and heavier and heavier. And this consumer 
who's already been shot up is going to get shot some more. And eventually, that's it. You, you, he can't survive, and he's going to succumb to the wounds. But in the meantime, you know, Powell wants to talk about this resilient consumer just because they still spend money. And, and because they still spend money, oh, we have to fight you know, harder on inflation. But what they've done has no effect on inflation other than to just uh, exacerbate it because they haven't moved rates up enough to stop the borrowing, to stop the spending. And that's not going to happen. And again, one of the other points that, that Powell made during this, uh, the Q&A, again, he brought up the canard of uh, expectations where he said, uh, you know, we, we got to make sure that inflation expectations don't get out of hand. Like, that's why we got to stay vigilant. That's why we got to keep rates higher because we don't want inflation expectations to get out of hand because then that's going to cause more inflation. As if it's the consumer himself, the American public, that will be responsible for higher inflation. And so to prevent the public from causing inflation, Powell needs to uh, be vigilant. The Fed needs to be vigilant. But the consumer can't cause inflation. They simply react to inflation. The inflation is created by the Fed, by the central bank, and not just the U.S. central bank, but all central banks. All these central banks have been creating inflation all around the world. In fact, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that and continue uh, on uh, the PAL uh, 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 panel on the other side of this break. So stick around. We'll be right back. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. So I'm talking about uh, consumer inflation expectations and what Powell said in his uh, uh, you know panel discussion. We don't want the consumer to start to feel that inflation is, is is picking up. Well, that's exactly what the consumer is thinking. You know, we got the consumer sentiment numbers today, which unexpectedly dropped. They were looking for 63 and a half, which would have been a small drop from the 63.8 from the prior month. And instead, it, we dropped all the way down to 60.4. But more significantly, the inflation expectation number, which is year ahead expectation of inflation, went up from 4.2 to 4.4. So by the Fed's own definition, consumers already expect inflation to be double uh, their 2% target. So the Fed has already lost control of expectations. But the truth is, 
inflation will likely be a lot higher than what consumers expect. If they only knew how much higher inflation was going to be, they would be even more pessimistic than they, than they are. But the other comment that I just started to make before the break is all these central bankers creating inflation. It, 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 it's the same everywhere. In fact, you know, I was listening on CNBC today. I caught the tail end of this, and, I, you know, it was Kyle Bass, and he was blaming correctly. He blamed, you know, the United States for helping to further impoverish the poor people around the world because we exported our inflation, which is what I've been saying for years. We created all this inflation, and we exported it. How do we do that? Well, our trade deficits, right? We print up all this money and we send all that money out into the world, right? And we take, we suck up all those goods. So we take goods away from uh, foreign consumers and replace it with our paper money. But also because we kept our interest rates so low, a lot of other uh, central banks around the world did the same thing and printed a lot of money in order to lower their rates because they didn't want their currencies appreciating against the dollar. So they depreciated along with the dollar and they created inflation. Now, these were boneheaded policy mistakes. Everybody was convinced that a strong currency was bad because your exports to the U.S. would go down. So we had currency wars. Everybody wanted to weaken their currency. And so all these central banks created inflation because America created inflation. And inflation hurts most the the poor and Obviously, there's a lot of poor people outside the United States. There's more poor people outside the United States than inside the United States. So they've been disproportionately impacted by all this inflation. And, you know, I heard this, the tail end of the talk. I wanted to hear the whole thing. So I went, I looked around, I got the CNBC website, and I saw uh, the Kyle Bass interview. In fact, I wasn't even sure who it was because I, I just heard the end of it. And I don't necessarily recognize Kyle's voice just from, from hearing it. Uh, without seeing them. Um, and I went to watch it, and it was like a six-minute and 20-cent clip. And I'm watching it. I knew I caught the very end, because as soon as he finished the statement, it was like, okay, thanks a lot. And, you know, they, 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 they cut to commercial or something. So I'm watching the interview, and six minutes and 20 seconds into it, they just cut him off mid-sentence, and they just, they just cut away, and that was it. So that entire part of the interview was cut out because I don't think CNBC wanted their viewers hearing that. They're probably surprised that he said it. Uh, and it was too harsh a reality for the CNBC viewer to be exposed to somebody blaming the U.S., blaming the Fed for all this inflation and bad monetary policy and, you know, exporting it to the rest of the world. So they cut it out. So I couldn't even hear the, the entire thought. Uh, because CNBC did, didn't want to have it up on their website. They didn't, you know, so it's not on YouTube. It's not, it's not on, on Twitter. But also on the same uh, line, I was reading an article about Mario Draghi, who is now coming out, and he's, he's very critical uh, about the European Union. He's warning about stagflation, and he's saying maybe the Eurozone is going to fall apart uh, because of the predicament that they're in. And I'm thinking, well, you know, the reason the Eurozone is about to die, according to what he's saying, is because Mario Draghi killed it. He was part of the reason that it's now dying, in his words. The reason that the Eurozone has all this inflation is because Mario Draghi deliberately created it. And I was criticizing him 
every time I heard this guy speak, every time he had a press conference and he talked about how we don't have enough inflation and we have to keep interest rates at zero or negative, wherever they are, the asset purchase program had to continue because inflation was only 1.7% and they needed it to be close to, but under 2%. And I pointed out how asinine it was to have the monetary pedal to the metal because you're trying to get inflation up to 1.99% and you're only at 1.7 and you don't think you're close enough to two. And so you're going to gun it. And I kept warning what's going to happen when we zoom through two and we go way above, which we did. We went up to 10, right? So trying to push it from 1.7 to 1.99, they overshoot up to 10. Did it really uh, make sense to have done that? Why didn't they just leave well enough alone? Hey, we're at 1.7. That's pretty close to two. Maybe we could raise interest rates above zero. Maybe we don't have to keep creating all this inflation it's already at 1.7. Do we really need to try for their extra 0.2, right? And do we need to do this much? Because I kept saying they are going to go way above 2%, and then it's going to be almost impossible to bring it back down. And now Mario Draghi is saying that because we have all this inflation, it's probably going to destroy the entire Eurozone economy. It's going to break apart. Well, if that was the case, if inflation was going to be so destructive to the Eurozone, why did you risk it? Why did you spend all those years trying to create more inflation? <laughs> and again, I explained it. It was to try to spare the European politicians from having to cut spending, from having to make difficult political choices, which is what they needed to do. But because of the European Central Bank, they didn't have to do that. And that's the same thing that's been happening in the United States. The Federal Reserve has spared politicians from having to make difficult political choices on cutting government spending, which is why the national debt is almost $34 trillion because the Fed has enabled the whole thing. And now Powell keeps talking about how inflation uh, is such a bad problem, how it is victimizing uh, so many Americans and creating all this hardship. Yes, and he's the reason for all the inflation because the Fed, and not just him, it's the entire institution, right? So it's not Powell's fault, right? He didn't start this, but it's the institution that he chairs that has been enabling this all along. But, you know, probably the worst thing, again, that he said, Powell, at this, uh, this meeting, this, uh, you know, roundtable, somebody asked him about the fiscal deficits or something about the, the size of the debt. I, I forget the exact question. And this is what Powell said. He said that, you know, I can't talk about fiscal policy, even indirectly, even indirectly. Like I'm not allowed right, to speak about it because, you know, the Fed is independent. And so we don't we don't want to get in that lane. Right. That's not our lane. We're monetary policy. And so we don't want to talk about fiscal policy, even even indirectly, <laughs> which, again, is a massive cop out and a lie. An independent central bank doesn't mean you don't criticize the government. It means you do criticize the government. That's the purpose of being independent. You see, if the Fed wasn't independent, then it couldn't criticize the government because the government would be controlling it, right? The reason for an independent Fed is so it can rise above politics. And so it's not controlled by vote-seeking politicians. The purpose of an independent Fed 
is so that the Fed can criticize the government when it does something bad, like running huge deficits. Right? That's bad. That's why we have inflation. So if Powell refuses to criticize any mistakes that he knows the government is making on the fiscal side, what is the point of an independent Fed? In fact, he reiterated during that uh, meeting or that, that discussion how much he uh, believes in the independence of the Fed. Okay, well, the point of the independent Fed is to criticize the government because the government is looking for votes. Politicians will do the wrong thing. You need an independent entity to rein them in, to check them, to say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Yes, maybe the voters like it, but they don't like inflation and you're causing it, so you need to get your fiscal house in order if you want inflation to come down. That's exactly what Paul Volcker did. Paul Volcker was a sharp critic of the government and their deficit spending. And he said, if you want lower inflation, you've got to reduce government spending or raise taxes or something, but you have to bring down these deficits because I can't do it all with monetary policy. Powell thinks he can do it all with monetary policy. He says he doesn't care what the fiscal policy is. He doesn't care how big the deficits are. He just takes them as they come, and the Fed just goes about its business without even looking at or considering what's happening on the fiscal side when it's extremely important. In fact, a big development happened on the fiscal side today in the bond market yesterday at the Treasury auction. I'm going to talk about that on the other side of this break, so stick around. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. All right. So one thing that happened during the week that really was a shot across the bow with this bull market, and it should have done more damage. And in fact, the, the market sold off on Thursday, the stock market, the bond market, in reaction to this. But the government held its uh, routine treasury bond auction. And this particular auction that we had yesterday was one of the weakest auctions they've ever had, meaning that it was very sloppy. There was not a lot of demand for treasuries. Now, I don't know why there's any demand for treasuries, and eventually there won't be. But there was enough demand to get the auction off, but in a very bad way. I mean, people that were grading this, you know, would give it an F. I think Rick Santella gave it a D minus because, you know, there were enough buyers there to get it done, right? It wasn't like a failed auction where the Treasury held an auction and, and nobody showed up or not enough people showed up. They showed up, but not in a big way. The big to cover ratio 
was 2.23, which was the lowest since December of 2021. But more importantly, the tail in this auction was the longest ever. And that is an indication of weakness. And what the tail is in a, in a bond auction is it's the difference between the average rate on the bonds and the highest rate that the government has to pay. And so when you have a long tail, that means in order to complete the auction, it had to extend uh, out to bidders that didn't want to pay as much. And this was the longest tail since they started measuring it. And so that indicates that the government is running out of buyers. They haven't run out completely yet, uh, but it was a bad auction and it, it, it doesn't bode well uh, for, for Treasury bonds and for the U.S. economy. But the market's already shrugged that off today, right? We had a huge rally in, in the stock market today. Uh, so, you know, they shrugged it off. But this is a bad sign. It's what I've been warning about. And eventually, the auctions are going to be a lot worse than this because eventually there won't be enough buyers. I mean, why people want to buy these bonds? Investors still believe that inflation is going to go down. I mean, they still think the Fed's going to succeed in lowering inflation down to 2%. I mean, that's why gold had such a bad week, because even though the stock market rallied on the idea that the Fed is done hiking and is going to start cutting, the expectations are that even though the Fed is cutting, it's only going to be 75 basis points. The markets expect inflation to drop a lot more than 75 basis points. And so the expectation is for real interest rates to go up. And it's the expectation of higher real interest rates that is weighing on the gold price. I mean, it's pushing up the dollar somewhat, but it's weighing more heavily on gold because everybody thinks gold is a function of real rates. And as long as real interest rates are rising, that's bad for gold. Now, in a way, they're right. Positive real interest rates is good for gold, but we don't actually have positive real interest rates because the inflation rate is made up. What they're looking at is the CPI, the official government measure of inflation, and they're using that to determine whether rates are, are negative or positive. But they're actually negative. We don't have positive real rates. We have negative real rates if you use a real rate of inflation instead of a phony rate of inflation. But the reality is, rather than real interest rates rising, which is what the gold traders expect, Real interest rates are going to collapse when inflation takes off. And in the face of that, the Fed cuts rates anyway, because the Fed is more concerned about propping up the financial system, the banks, the government, uh, you know, bailing out everybody, you know, trying to kick the can down the road. We know what the Fed is going to do when push comes to shove. They already showed their hand earlier this year when we had the beginning of the banking crisis back in March. I mean, every time there's been a crisis, the Fed has responded the same way. And I'm confident that they're going to continue that, despite the fact that inflation is so much higher than their 2% target. But because inflation is so much higher than their 2% target, they're not going to get the benign outcome that they're used to. The stimulus is going to be a sedative, and it's going to be a dollar crisis and a sovereign debt crisis. Now, a couple of other things I wanted to get to that happened on the week uh, that the market shrugged off. WeWork finally uh, declared bankruptcy. I think that was on Monday. I didn't think I commented it on my last podcast. But, you know, I commented a lot about WeWork when, when they first tried to do the IPO and it failed. I was a big critic 
of the WeWork business model on this podcast. And then when they managed to get off the IPO through a SPAC a couple of years later, I commented then that this was a disaster. Because even then, when people bought this IPO, their own earnings reports or loss report showed that they were losing $2.75 for every dollar in revenue. Every time they collected a dollar, they lost almost $3. No way to make that up on volume, but it was a disaster of a, a, a business model. I couldn't understand why anybody was buying that. And of course, now the stock is at zero uh, because it's gone bankrupt. But this bankruptcy is also significant uh, for uh, the, the real estate market because they are a major, major uh, a tenant. Uh, and so now they're not gonna pay. And so there's a lot of office space that's gonna be on the market uh, and there's not enough demand. There's already huge vacancies because of work from home and, and a lot of other stuff. So this is a, uh, a, a big problem uh, for the banks and the economy. The market's ignored it. You know, Janet Yellen said something that she got half right, which is rare because she normally gets nothing right. But she made a point about China because a lot of people are, you know, pressing that we need to decouple our economy from China. You know, we need to get rid of China. We're too reliant on China for key things, uh, rare earth, pharmaceuticals, all sorts of stuff. And, you know, China's our enemy. And so we can't depend on our enemy, right? We, we got to be self-reliant, which is all true. We should be. But she said that it, we can't do that. We can't decouple. That it would be a disaster for both countries. She's half right. It would be a disaster for America. You know, it would actually be a boon for China. China needs to decouple because China has got, you know, the losing end of this bargain. Because the way the two economies are intertwined, China makes everything and we consume it. China saves everything and we borrow it. So, so they, make all, they make all the stuff and we just print the money. So if we stopped trading with China, they would keep their stuff and we would keep our paper money, right? But what can you do with that paper money? Nothing. China can do a lot of stuff with its stuff. It can consume it. Now, I understand that if China ceased doing business with America, cold turkey, in the short run, there would be some disruptions. The whole Chinese economy is screwed up too because of this relationship that it's had with the United States, which has caused it uh, to keep interest rates too low, to print too much money, to create too much inflation, to create asset bubbles. I mean, we've basically screwed up the entire world's economy with our excesses and, and, and our inflation. I mean, the, the, the cost of maintaining the dollar standard, the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, as we keep on over-consuming and under-saving and under-investing, we have distorted and caused problems all over the world including problems in China. But the sooner the Chinese can break out of this, you know, parasitic relationship, the better. I mean, the whole world, right, is, is, is involved in this, uh, where we consume without producing and we borrow without saving. And this has consequences. I mean, we enjoy this artificially high standard of living and the rest of the world has to accept a in uh, a, a lower standard of living. They have to produce things that they don't consume. Now, they think in the long run, well, they're going to get paid for their, their sacrifice, that they're building up a savings account. They have all these U.S. IOUs. But, you know, we can't pay. Either we default or we inflate. And so they're not going to get 
um, you know, what they bargained for. You know, I, I mentioned something about this on Twitter and, and someone said, you know, but, but we're their best customer. I mean, how, could, how can China losing its best customer be good for China? We're not their best customer if they have to loan us all the money to buy their stuff. And if they do that, knowing that we're never going to pay back any of the money we've already, they've already loaned us and they keep loaning more. Now, the Chinese are starting to figure this out. That's why they're not buying U.S. treasuries anymore. They're slowly divesting, but they still own a pile of them, right? They haven't gotten rid of all of them yet. I mean, but they're trying to get out. That's the problem. The Chinese want out. Look at what happened at the auction I talked about. The, the, there was a big drop in demand uh, from indirect bidders, which are the foreigners. Even the direct bidders went down. The dealers got stuck with a bunch of bonds that, that nobody wanted. They, they, they bought them. Um, but the Chinese aren't buying. The Japanese aren't buying. The Japanese are selling. They've got to defend their currency. Their currency is, you know, collapsing. It's no 150 uh, yen of the dollar. You know, they got to sell treasuries. Who the hell is going to buy them? You know, I mean, yes, some people are buying them for 5%, but still Americans don't have much savings. That's not a lot of yield given how much inflation. The only thing that's making them a good deal is because the dollar hasn't collapsed yet. But the only reason the dollar hasn't collapsed yet is because people still haven't figured out that inflation is not going back down to 2%, that it's going to go much higher than 2%. And, um, you know, the Fed ultimately is going to uh, surrender in this pretend war uh, that it's waging on inflation. But I want to move forward and talk about politics because I watched the Republican presidential debate. They've narrowed the field down now to five candidates, neither of which are going to win because the candidate that's got this thing locked up is Donald Trump. And he's not, you know, participating in these debates. And there's no point because he's already winning by such a large margin without being in the debates. Why, why bother? He, he's got nothing to gain by being in these debates and, and everything to lose, assuming that he could lose the nomination by participating. But why even take a chance? I mean, the candidates that need the debate are the ones that are 1%, 2%, 3% in the polls. They need the debates because it's the only way they can rise in the polls. I mean, the only thing that can happen to Trump is he falls because he's already so high up. There's no place to go but down. Uh, so, you know, he's just going to coast through to the nomination. But I wanted to talk about, you know, some of the things that, that, that they said or they, they didn't say. So one thing, everybody seemed to agree that oil's the problem. I mean, because all of the inflation questions they got and all of their answers were oil, like, you know, how are we going to bring the oil price down? Well, we're going to drill, baby, drill. We're going to, we're going to have more drilling. We're going to be more self-reliant. And all this is true. Yeah, we, you know, we, sh we should uh, have you know, the government get out of the way and allow the market to function. And let's you know, be more uh, uh, self-reliant and produce more energy in all forms without government distortion. That's all true. But the oil price is not why we have inflation. In fact, oil today, it's, it's under $80 a barrel again. We're about $78, $79 a barrel. That's what we were in 2007. We had oil at $80 a barrel. You know, it went up to 150 in 2008. But even before that big run-up, oil was, you know, under $80 a barrel or $8 a barrel back in 2007. It's the same price now. So oil prices haven't even gone up. I mean, have they gone up 
from the COVID lows? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, oil went negative during COVID. But yes, oil prices crashed early on in COVID, and now they're back up. But they're not way up. That doesn't explain why prices have gone up so much. Now, I think eventually all this inflation is going to cause oil prices to go way up. Right now, consumers are getting a bargain. You can still buy oil for the same price it was in 2007, despite all the inflation that we've created in the last 15, 16 years, 18, whatever it is. Despite all that inflation, you still get to buy oil at the same price that it was back then, before we created all this inflation. So oil prices have not got up. Now, maybe without all this inflation, oil would be a lot cheaper. That's probably true. Had we not created all this inflation, oil would be a lot lower than $80 a barrel. But eventually, it's going to be much higher. Inflation is going to push it up. But the focus in the Republican debate should not have been on oil. The focus needs to be on government spending. Everybody was saying, what are you going to do to stop the inflation? And everybody's answer had to do with energy. That's not going to do it. You've got to stop the source, which is the deficit spending. There needs to be significant cuts to government spending. And nobody's really talking about that. Now, the one guy, I guess, who, who kind of mentioned it uh, was Ron DeSantis. And, you know, he talked about how we have to make cuts. And he said, you know, we have to make cuts to Social Security, which is true. But because he's talking about that, he's got no chance of, of, of getting a nomination because Donald Trump is like, we're not touching Social Security. Now, he said that he wanted to take Social Security away from Warren Buffett, right? Oh, is Warren Buffett still getting his Social Security? You know, shame on him. You know, yeah, I mean, taking Social Security away from Warren Buffett, I mean, that's no big deal. I mean, he's a billionaire. In fact, even if you took Social Security away from all the billionaires, it wouldn't make a difference. The problem is not that billionaires are getting Social Security. The problem is that everybody else is getting it. That is the problem. The billionaires are the least of our concern, right? It's the middle class collecting Social Security. That is the problem because the money's not there. Now, one of the things that DeSantis said is that, look, you know, not everybody gets every government, uh, you know, program. He said there's food stamps. He says, I've never gotten any food stamps. I'm glad there is food stamps because, you know, there are people who need food stamps, so we don't want people to starve. Um, but a lot of people don't get food stamps. And he basically implied that the same thing should be the case for Social Security, right? You just get it if you need it, like food stamps. Well, that ain't going to fly, right? That dog won't hunt at the polls. It's true. I believe it, right? He should, you know, but now that he's opened that door, that pretty much means he's got no chance. Because here is the difference. The average guy who's getting Social Security doesn't think he's getting food stamps. See, he thinks that's his money. He thinks he's entitled to that money. Because out of his paycheck, every week for 40 years of his working life, there was a deduction for Social Security. It was taken out. He thinks that's his money. He didn't put anything in for food stamps. There's nothing on your paycheck that, you know, food stamps, and they didn't put any money into a special food stamp fund so that when you need food stamps, you could draw from the money you put in. No, food stamps are covered by the regular income tax. So nobody thinks they're entitled to a food stamp, right? It's just a government program. But everybody believes they're entitled to Social Security. They think it's their money. 
they think they, they think it's like a real insurance policy that they have. Right? Now, that's by design. That's not an accident that they think that. That's what the government wanted them to think. That's what Roosevelt wanted them to think when he concocted this scheme. And they originally sold it to the American public. It was social insurance. People thought that they were paying into an insurance plan. They, were, they actually called Social Security taxes a premiums, like an insurance premium. And the money went into a trust fund. And then when you retired, you collected your benefits, all the contributions, all your Social Security contributions were supposedly paid back to you um, as, uh, as, as a benefit. So people think they have some kind of property interest in Social Security. So the minute you start talking about taking away Warren Buffett's Social Security, now someone says, wait a minute, what about mine? If you could take away Warren Buffett's, then maybe it's not really his property. If Social Security is like food stamps, if it's like welfare, well, then once you take it away from Warren Buffett, well, you could take it away from me. And so you can't take it away from Warren Buffett. So the minute you talk about taking away Warren Buffett's Social Security, all the people who get Social Security are going to vote against you because they're worried that it's a slippery slope, that it is the camel's nose under the tent. But the truth is, and the reality is, nobody is entitled to those Social Security benefits. In fact, there was a Supreme Court case, Fleming versus Nestor. This goes back to 1960. Somebody actually sued because they lost some Social Security benefits. I don't remember the details. Maybe the guy moved out of the country or he did something, but he didn't get his Social Security benefits anymore. He got them reduced. And so he sued and he said, hey, that's my money. You can't, you can't do that. And the Supreme Court said, no, it's not your money. It's, it's just a government program. You know, Social Security taxes are an income tax. That's all it is. It's just another income tax. You pay two income taxes, uh, you pay the regular income tax, you pay the Social Security tax, which is basically a payroll tax. So it's not on your entire income, it's just on your wages. But none of that money belongs to you. The government can do anything it wants with that money. You have no legal claim to any of the money that you paid in the past in Social Security taxes. No more then you have a claim to get your income taxes back. And the Supreme Court said this, right? So it's just not me saying it. The court has said it. But people don't know this. Politicians don't want to level with the public and tell them this. They still want to think, hey, that's your money. We never took that money away from you. We just put it in trust for you. We put it into this trust fund, and you're going to get it back. So that's your money. We can't touch that money, right? In fact, there are a lot of you know, conservatives that say, hey, they, hey, the government should stay away, stay out of Social Security, right? I'm a conservative. Get your hands off my Social Security, right? Not realizing that there's nothing conservative about that because Social Security money comes from the government. It doesn't come from your contributions. Now, yes, people think, well, I put my contributions into a trust fund. Well, not really, because the minute it went in the trust fund, it went out the other door. The money didn't stay there. I mean, technically, this is what they do. So they take the Social Security taxes and they go into a, a trust fund account, a Social Security account, which they call this trust fund. But don't trust it and it's not funded, right? So the money goes in there. Then the government goes to that account and, and, and takes all the money out and, and puts it in with all the regular tax revenue. And then it leaves an IOU in there, right? It, like, it goes into the cookie jar eats the cookies, and then puts it in IOU, like IOU a cookie. So the cookie jar isn't full of actual cookies. The cookies are gone. The government ate them. 
there's just a bunch of pieces of paper and there's an IOU, a cookie, right? So, but anyway, so getting back, so the government puts in an IOU, which is a bond, a treasury bond, right? So the Social Security Trust Fund has all these treasury bonds. And people say, you see, look, we got this trust fund because it's full of treasury bonds. But it's not an asset to the government. If the government, you know, borrows from itself, the, the, the bond that it, that, it, that it loaned to itself is not an asset because it's also its own liability. If the Social Security Trust Fund had invested in German government bonds or Canadian government bonds, then yeah, then it'd be a real asset to the government that the government could use to pay Social Security benefits. But the government didn't do that. The government loaned the money to itself and then spent the money. And so it's not an asset. How does the government tap into those trust funds if it needs the money? It's doing it right now because Social Security is already collecting less in payroll taxes than it is paying out in, in benefits. So where's it getting the money? The Social Security trust fund is selling treasuries, just like the Fed, just like the Chinese, just like the Japanese. It's selling these treasuries. Well, what would the government do if there were no trust funds? The same exact thing. It would be selling treasuries. The best example, and I've given this before on the podcast, but not everybody has heard all the podcasts, but this is the best way to think about the Social Security trust funds. If you get a check, if your buddy writes you a check for $10,000, assuming you know he's good for it, that check is your asset. It's your buddy's liability, but it's your asset. You can count it. You have $10,000 right, that, that you have. But what if you take out your checkbook and you write yourself a check for $10,000, even if you have $10,000 in the bank, so the check's not going to bounce, but you write yourself a check for $10,000. Are you $10,000 richer because you wrote yourself a check? Would you, would you, would you list that $10,000 check as an asset to you? Well, of course not. Why? Because there's an offsetting liability. Because you are the, the, the maker of that check. You're the, you're the one that has to pay the $10,000. So it's a liability and an asset at the same time. So it cancels itself out. That's the same thing for a government trust fund. If a government trust fund has a trillion dollars worth of government bonds in it, it has nothing because it owes the trust fund the same trillion dollars that it's claiming it has as an asset. So there never was a trust fund. It was all a con to make voters believe that they were being enrolled in a giant insurance plan that was being run by the government. But it wasn't an insurance plan. It was a Ponzi scheme from day one. It was a Ponzi scheme. You know, my dad wrote a book about it, Social Security Swindle. It's, I don't even have any copies anymore. And you can try to buy them. You know, it's out of print, but probably have some used, uh, used uh, copies around. And, you know, it's a very good book. I mean, part of it, again, my dad says, you know, it's a Social Security Swindle, how anyone can drop out, right? Because my dad was, you know, advocating that people stop paying the tax. And, and so if I'm telling you to read the book, it's not so you can drop out and, and stop paying the tax. My father argued that it was illegal the way the government was collecting it. And he was probably right, because so much of what the government does is illegal. But I'm not advocating that. I would, but I would advocate reading the book to understand uh, how this Ponzi scheme was sold to the public. But my father begins that book by talking about Ponzi and, and what Ponzi did. And he said that what the Social Security Administration should do is they should erect a statue of Ponzi uh, to adorn their lobby, right? A giant statue, because that's what they've done. They've created a intergenerational 
Ponzi scheme. But, you know, Ponzi schemes are illegal because they don't work. Eventually, they collapse. And Social Security is no exception. Social Security is going to collapse. It's just a question of when. Now, politicians can be honest about that and, and try to make some changes, uh, like um, DeSantis is suggesting, although what he's suggesting is not nearly enough. But for even suggesting it, he's dead, right? It's the third rail of politics for a reason. You touch it, you die. He touched it, he's dead. He's not going to win the Republican nomination, let alone the White House, um, stepping on, on, that, on that third rail. But the reason uh, it, 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 it's a Ponzi is because it's pay-as-you-go, right? That's how they describe it now, pay-as-you-go, which is, you know, like quantitative easing is another word for inflation. Pay-as-you-go is another word for Ponzi because that's what, that's what Bernie Madoff was doing. It was pay-as-you-go, right? That's how he paid his investors as it came, right? Money came in, it came out, pay-as-you-go. That's what it is. The idea is that, well, the people who are working now, they, they pay the Social Security for the people who are retired, and then when it's your turn to retire, well, the new group of people are going to pay your benefits. Well, take a look at the millennials. You know, are they going to pay your Social Security, uh, baby boomer? Not a chance. They, they're living at home with their parents. They don't have any money. A lot of these guys aren't working. Uh, it's, it's impossible. The numbers don't work. Yeah, it was great for the people who got into Social Security early. The first person to get Social Security. Her name was like Ima Fuller or something like that, or I forget her name. She lived to be 100, I think. She paid in for like one year, and she collected Social Security for 40 years. She made out like a bandit. I think she collected over $20,000. She paid in, you know, a few hundred bucks. So yeah, for her, it was great, right? She came in early. All the guys that get in on a Ponzi early, you know, they do really well. It's the guys that get stuck holding the bag. The people that come in late, the late guys, it's us. It's my generation. It's the baby boom and maybe the generation that immediately follows. I mean, some of the baby boomers, I'm actually young in the baby boom. The baby boom ended in 1964. So I was born in 1963. So I just made it. My brother was born in 1965. He's not a boomer. So I, you know, I, I just made it. Um, but I'm still 60, so I'm not, you know, at Social Security. But this thing is going to implode on my generation. Even the baby boomers who are currently collecting Social Security are not going to continue to collect it, not in any real uh, manner. Yes, the, the benefits may be paid, but will they have any value? That's a completely uh, different story. And in fact, politicians have known for a long time that Social Security would eventually, you know, be worthless. My father, another quote that he put in that book um, was from William Proxmire, who was a senator, uh, and he was the head of the Senate Committee on, on Money and Banking. And my father reproduced a exchange that was recorded in the congressional record as William Proxmire was discussing Social Security and some cuts back then or some reforms even back then that they needed to make in the system. But 
at some point, I guess there must have been discussion about, well, maybe we, you know, we're going to default or, you know, we, we're not going to be able to make these Social Security payments. And Proxmire said, oh, no, no, we've got a printing press. We're going to use it. We're going to make good. We're going to pay the Social Security benefits. So don't worry. They will be paid. They may not be worth anything when the recipients receive them, but they will be paid. And, you know, my father, you know, correctly looked at that startling admission, which really should have, you know, set horrors throughout Congress and the electorate, because you have a senator, a powerful head of the Senate Banking Committee, making a statement that Social Security checks will be worthless, worthless, not worth less, but worthless when the recipients get their checks. Now, what does that mean? That means a dollar is worthless, right? Because your Social Security checks are dollars. So number one, what good is it to get a worthless check, right? Because you can't buy anything with worthless money. So is it a consolation? Yeah, I got my Social Security check, but I can't buy anything with it. Who cares if you got a check? What people care about is what they can buy with the check, not just the check itself. So that was a startling admission. But also what's startling about it is if the Social Security checks are worthless, all dollars are worthless. You know, government bonds are worthless. Your savings account, right, because it's all the same money. So here you have a senator back then said, look, we're just going to print money. We don't care if it loses all of its value because we don't have the integrity to honestly cut benefits once they've been promised. But, we, but we're willing to eviscerate the value of those benefits by creating inflation. And that is the predicament that we're in now. And the politics of it just don't work. There is no way that politicians are going to cut these benefits, especially when people believe they own them. It is very difficult. Even conservatives, even Republicans think they're entitled to that Social Security money. They worked hard. It was taken out of their pay. It's their money. They don't look at it as welfare, but it is. It comes from the same source. It's just like food stamps, except people believe that they're entitled to it because they were lied to. They were lied to by the government. The whole thing is a giant fraud. If somebody in the private sector tried to do what the government did with respect to Social Security, they would be in jail. The way it was marketed was fraud. The way it's been run is fraud. The whole thing was a giant fraud from Roosevelt in the 1930s all the way up to today. The government has perpetuated this fraud. And, you know, no one's gone to jail for it, right? But this, this is our government. So if you're thinking the government is going to solve your problems, remember, we're governed by a bunch of crooks. The only problem they have is their own reelection. And the way they get reelected is by making your problems worse. Anyway, that's it for uh, today's podcast. I'll be back again uh, next week uh, with more podcasts, more reports. Oh, I forgot to mention gold prices. Yeah, gold prices were way down on the week. Shouldn't have been. All the fundamentals were very positive for gold. Golds were now back down to about 1930, something like that. Um, let me see where it, uh, where it settled. It's at, um, well, about 1940. But don't, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. I mean, the stock market went up. Bitcoin went up, you know, up to 38,000. More speculation on an ETF. So everything that should be going down is going up. The one thing that really should be going up 
is going down, and that's gold. And that goes double for gold mining stocks. So buy them while you can uh, and enjoy your weekend. Thank you.